What if I could give you three strategies to magically prevent burnout? Do I have your attention? Full disclosure, I don't have three strategies because burnout isn't about you. It's about something bigger and you can't prevent burnout. It requires something greater. Sound a bit confusing? Playfulness aside, today we are looking at something essential to everyone listening. We're going to talk about burnout, but I promise you, this will be a unique conversation and something different from the walk away from work and get your exercise that's typical of so many of these conversations. Yes, we'll encourage you to get exercise, but today is more about reframing than rejuvenating. Hello, colleagues, and welcome to the Assistant Principal Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Frederick Buskey. We are all on a leadership journey. Every day, we have a chance to grow. Every day, we have a chance to help others grow. My goal and the goal of this podcast is to help you grow into being a strategic leader, a leader who puts people before purpose, who solves problems instead of treating symptoms, and who understands the difference between progress and action. Through this podcast, my daily email and virtual programs, I'm working to build a network of inspired and inspiring school leaders. Let's get started on today's adventure and this unique opportunity to learn to live and lead better. Dr. Helen Kelly is committed to helping schools maximize well-being and improve school culture. She led international schools in Asia and Europe until she retired from her work as a principal in 2020. She's been conducting research in the field of educator well-being for almost a decade. Helen brings a unique and valuable perspective to her work. She draws upon her knowledge of evidence-based practices, her understanding of the needs of school communities, and her legal background to deliver approaches that are strategic, effective, and have long-term impact on individual well-being and school culture. Hello, Helen, and welcome to the show. Hi, Frederick. Thanks very much for inviting me. I've been very much looking forward to it. Yeah, so have I. <laughs> we always begin with celebrations. So what are you celebrating today? Oh, well, that's a good one because I've been, my husband and I have been trying to buy a house in the Republic of Ireland for the last two years and we've had two properties fall through. We've just had an offer accepted on the third and we just had the survey today from the engineer and there are no issues that came in literally about half an hour ago. So we're feeling pretty good and positive about the future. Now, that's wonderful. Is there a story that would help listeners understand why you're doing the work that you're doing? Yeah, well, it's a it's a story that starts quite a long time ago, actually. You know, my first career was not um, in education. My first career was in law. And um, I worked for a big company in the UK that were part of the labor movement. So they acted for trade union members who'd had accidents at work and suffered from industrial injuries. And so my kind of interest and passion in workplace well-being really began then. And that was, and I'm you know, aging myself a bit here now, if I say that was in 1988, um, when I was in my early to mid-20s. Um, and then I became a teacher and then a school principal. 
I worked overseas for most of my career. And um, then I became interested. Um, I picked up on that interest again of workplace wellbeing when I did my EdD thesis. And this was about um, school leader wellbeing. And I guess I became interested in that because I was struggling myself you know, and I wanted, I thought, well, why isn't anyone else talking about this? So that was the subject of my thesis. And then I, that was back in, that was 10 years ago that I began uh, researching for that. And then in the way that doctors make the worst patients, even though I'd been working in the field of workplace well-being for, you know, decades and in school leader well-being for six years, in 2019, I experienced an occupational burnout myself. And as a result of that, I left, I decided to leave my career as a school principal. And of course I was going to retire and that was smack bang in the middle of the pandemic. And there was such a need for support with wellbeing. And so suddenly, because I'd had a blog for about five years and I'd been writing a lot of articles and I'd had some articles published as well. So some people knew me for my work in the wellbeing field and suddenly schools all over the world started contacting me and asking me for support. And so over the last three years, I've gone from thinking I was retiring to if I really wanted, this could be a full-time job, you know, but it, but it's a deep interest and passion that goes back mm, 35 years. Mm, mm, yeah. Well, so I think I heard you back in April on Will Parker's The Principal Matters podcast. And yes. I remember being so excited and it, it's interesting how, I think our journeys intersect. One of the things that I've just really starting to dig into in this past year is this idea that we actually need to put people before purpose in our organizations. And, you know, I, I used to be one of the big purpose, purpose guys. I came, came to age uh, in the nineties and early two thousands when that was, we talked about purpose driven organizations. And I think the, the pandemic really laid bare how we have these different parts of ourselves. And I, I think about teachers bringing knowledge, skills, dispositions, and health. And the idea that we can actually separate those things, I think it's just become apparent we can't. And so I'm really excited to have you here and hear how you have started to link that, that wellness with the work. Yeah, I completely relate to that, Frederick. You know, when I look back at how I behaved as a principal um, in certainly the second school where I was a principal, I feel quite embarrassed and ashamed to think that I was not well-being oriented then. And I worked in an environment where the staff were and they expected certain things. And I thought my role was to get them to work harder because that was for the benefit of the students. And there re really was a kind of dissonance between what they thought was the right way, you know, to work and what I thought was. And of course, now I'm sure all those people I worked with find it quite amusing and maybe be quite cynical actually about how I've ended up doing this. And I'm sure they're all telling, you know, people, oh, well, she was actually not very good at that. Um, so I, it's important that I hold my hand up, you know, what you've just said about that purpose driven and the purpose is always the students, what's best for students. You know, I was, I was a whip cracker. Let's get everybody to work harder. And, uh, you know, it's worth sacrificing ourselves because this is what's best for students. And I feel quite embarrassed now to think that that was 
what I was like before I knew better. Yeah. I, Helen, I think about all of the missed opportunities over my career that, that I've had with people. And I, mean, did, I connected lots of times and did lots of good things and had lots of positive interactions, but there were so many places where I was just so task-focused that yes. we needed to get this done and move on. And I missed those opportunities to connect, missed those opportunities to ask that second question and just, hey, wait a minute, you just said you were fine, but how are you? What's happening? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I've always been quite um, person oriented in that sense. I would like to think that I was, and I always had time for people and I kind of tapped into other people's emotions and understand their needs. But when I was working in my school in Germany, you know, Germany is a very progressive country in regard to workplace well-being compared to where I trained in the UK and then also where I'd lived and worked as a, for my first job as a principal, which was in Southeast Asia in Bangkok. And they already had structures in place, which are now the kinds of structures that I'm encouraging schools to put in. Whereas when, when I first went there, I was horrified at things like um, the former principal had guaranteed them that everyone could have one day a week where they started late and one day a week where they left early. And staff used to come in at one o'clock and say, well, I'm off now and I'm going to have a run. And then I'm going to walk the dog and then I'm going to cook a lasagna. And I think, how dare they be coming in telling me this? And I just thought the whole thing was outrageous. And now I look back and think they were so much wiser than I was. And I can understand why they pushed back against me. And the relationship that we had was often, you know, quite confrontational because they they knew better. And I thought I did. And I was wrong. Helen, mm. I when I listened to you on the, on Will's podcast, I actually ran, I was outside working and I ran inside and I typed this quote down that you said, burnout is a workplace condition. So the best way to prevent it is to change workplace conditions. Okay. That, that makes sense. How do we do that? What are you talking about? Yeah, I mean, it's not just me that's come up with that. You know, one of the things that my legal training has given me is this understanding of how important it is that everything is factual and evidence based. Because in the world of well-being, there's so much that's kind of nebulous and a bit woohoo sometimes. And I'm very much not that person. So I've built my work over the last 10 years around what the research says. So these are people who are much more clever than I am, who've dedicated their lives to researching in this field. And that's what I rely on. And it's very, very clear, Frederick, that the um, that, that burnout is not a condition of the individual. It is not a failing of the individual. It is situational and contextual. It's a workplace condition. And yes, there are some behaviours in individuals that might make us more vulnerable to burnout, but primarily it is a condition of the workplace. And the way in which we can address that has to be through a strategic framework and in my book which has been published recently regarding uh, school leader well-being it's called school leaders matter i share that framework but actually that framework can be used to support staff well-being um you know across schools not just with leaders and so it's about taking a strategic approach it, it, you know, one of the things you learn when you work in the field of workplace well-being is there is never a one-size-fits-all approach. 
what works for one school does not work for another school and what works for one in individual or one team within a school may not work for others so you need you have to find out what's going on in your school and you have to base your um, interventions or initiatives um, improvements change upon what's needed in that workplace and I think that's the key mm. so if I'm a principal and I'm listening to this or an assistant principal and I'm thinking okay what are the context clues or what are the parts of my school that I really need to be attending to that are going to be those kinds of warning flags and indicators that whoa we need to do something different well the truth is you need to gather data you know, the first thing I recommend schools do is what I call laying foundations is to actually um, bring together a well-being team. And that should be from all areas of the staff. Um, ideally, it should be from all stakeholders. So it should include parents and students as well. But most schools don't feel ready for that at the beginning. So a well-being team that represents all staff groups, not just educators, you know, all staff. And then the next stage would be to educate stakeholders around why this is important. Why is staff well-being in schools important? And, um, you know, how can we connect staff well-being to student well-being and student outcomes? And once we've got that done, those are your foundations. Then, you know, what you've asked is about the red flags. The truth is that we need to intentionally gather data. And that may be through surveys. Um, it may be through focus groups. It may be using HR data that we already have, you know, like absenteeism data, exit data from exit interviews when people leave. It might be informal data from um, check-ins or from staff appraisal um, or evaluation. Um, everything that we've got, we bring it all together and we try to figure out what what is it telling us and also what don't we know? So what gaps do we need to fill? by finding out mm -hmm. and once we've got all that information then we can start you know understanding what the story is and figuring out what the priorities are but gathering data has to be you know the, the most important stage otherwise you're just imposing ideas for change that might have worked in other schools on a school where it, this might not be necessary or this might not fit with our context I love that. In I can imagine saying, uh, we're gonna we're going to form a school well-being team and people rolling their eyes a little bit for a couple of reasons. Um, one of which I think is we do in the in the United States, there really is this culture of individualism and the culture that as individuals, we own our own emotions, our own outlooks. So I think that's culturally, making sure that we're detaching. I loved what you said. It's not a problem with the individual, right? And and so under I think just teaching people that, right? Burnout is not about you. Burnout is about us as yeah, an organization. That's where, that's, that's where the education stage comes in. So, you know, after you've formed your well-being team, and you know, if you can't form a well-being team because people just don't believe in that thing, then you do your education first. You know, so you have, you know, one or two ambassadors who are passionate about well-being, and that might be a principal or assistant principal or someone else to to help people to understand, you know, through through showing them the research and um, 
So yes, it's important that they share the research, um, all the research that um, explains what burnout is, explains how burnout happens, explains how burnout is a condition of the workplace, and explains how burnout is connected with directly with student outcomes. And you know, I've developed and delivered these workshops many, many, many times, and they never fail to make an impression on individuals and teams and leaders and schools. Because I think when, when you frame it around the research, which is so deep and persuasive, it's hard to deny. Mm. So I think if, if you know, if, as you say, you're having people be a bit cynical or whatever, they don't want to be part of a wellbeing team because they don't really get it. That's then that would be a starting point. You can you can flip it, do the education bit first, and then you'll have more people keen to be yeah. involved. So it's funny because when we when I just started this this line of questioning, I, I was fishing because I wanted you to kind of tell us, oh, here are the, here are the practices that you need to do. And, yep. and you didn't go there. You went to yep. that every school is going to be different. And when you talk about sharing that research, and I love the idea, right? That as, as leaders, one of our big powers is to cultivate the information and make sure that people are getting the right information. And, and so instead of just us driving the bus, what we can do is share the information. That's where the power and that's where the, the push comes from. And then if we do a good job with that and we create space for people to have those conversations and process the research, we don't have to come up with how are we going to fix this? People are going to tell us what they need, aren't they? Exactly. And the thing is, Frederick, that all the research shows that if this is a collaborative process across the staff, it's much more likely to be successful than if it's top down. You know, first of all, the school leaders can't give their staff um, well-being. You know, well-being is something that we do together. Um, but also in trying to figure out, first of all, to identify what needs to be done, but also to come up with creative ideas of how we can fix this because we don't have endless budgets, do we? We don't have endless staffing. We have restrictions and parameters that we have to work within. We can't suddenly cut the school year five weeks shorter or make the school day an hour shorter. So in order to figure out how we can fix this, we need to think creatively together. And the truth is as well, that no matter how long you were in the classroom as a principal, and no matter how well you think you know your school and all the different roles, you can't know everything and therefore you can't have the answers. You've got to look to your staff to help you to come up with the with the solutions. Um, it's not something that one person or a senior, you know, administrative team can do on their own and nor should, nor should it be. Mm. One of the messages that I'm really trying to emphasize with assistant principals and principals is to increase our trust in teachers, yeah. our trust that they're professionals, our trust that they're competent, our trust that they know what they need to do to improve their craft and improve the situation. And yet I'm pushing that message. And yet I just fell into my own trap or the leadership trap of thinking, we need to do leaders need to do and i'm thinking about okay leaders 
changing the structures and doing all this stuff. And, and no, back right out. Remember, we need to trust other people and the power is not in us doing the power is in creating conditions where they can do. Going back to that research, sharing it out, creating space for those discussions so that then teachers can start to drive that. And I just, I wanted to recap that and point out to listeners, like I fell right into the leadership trap of we do it and we yeah, don't, we don't do it. Yeah, it's easy to do, you know, but to, people want me to give them solutions. And I think sometimes they're disappointed when I don't. Um, the most effective work that I do is when I work with wellbeing teams and I help to implement this framework and we figure it out together. And that's really, really powerful. But, you know, the, the, the research shows that there are six areas of work life that are most likely to cause issues with workplace wellbeing and put people on the trajectory towards burnout. And the three most important of those, the first one is workload, which no one would be surprised to hear. So there are all kinds of interventions, we call them interventions in workplace wellbeing that we can put in place in order to reduce or improve workload. But you can see, can't you, how those will be different in every single school, you know, whether that be um, reducing requirements for reporting or marking, um, you know, or assessment. Um, the, the additional paperwork that we have to do, it will be different in every school. And so we might have categories where, where you know, the British government provides categories for reduction of workload um, and they don't all work for all schools. But, you know, there might be something there that can help people to, you know, understand what might need to be done. But then the next one, and this comes back to you talking about trust, it, it is in some ways even more important than workload, it's community. And this is about if we have, if we as an individual have a mismatch or an imbalance between the type of community that we need in our school and the type of community that we're experiencing, then that can make us vulnerable to burnout. And what we also know is if we have a supportive community, that even if we have issues in those other five areas of work life, a supportive community can offer protection against against burnout so what we're looking at there are things like the workplace culture do we have a sense of belonging do we feel recognized and appreciated is there a high level of trust going both ways between leadership and staff not just going in one direction um, are the interactions respectful and civil between colleagues and you can imagine how complicated that is to figure out you know so we do a we do a workplace culture survey i'm just doing some at the moment in with schools in london just this week with uh, in releasing results and it takes a bold school to ask those questions and you know to then um share the data with staff and then be prepared to act to make you know what what can we do to make interactions between staff more respectful what can we do to make people feel more recognized? What things can we change? So, you know, these are the kinds of interventions I'm talking about. The, the, the third one is control. This is about autonomy. And this comes back to what we were just talking about relating to collaboration. You know, what we know is that people um, have better well-being in the workplace if they have more autonomy and control over this decision-making process within the school and also their day-to-day -day work. 
And so how do we create a truly collaborative environment in school that allows people to feel um, that their opinion is valued, that they're heard, that they have a say? Um, and those three areas, the workload, the community and the control, that, you know, those are the kinds of things that we're going to be doing in school to make a difference. But it isn't as simple as just a tick sheet of, oh, we're going to do this, 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 and then everything will be fine. It's a, a process that takes two to three years. Like all meaningful work. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And something we do together, not something that one group does to another. Uh, yes. And I think that, again, that might be the title of this episode, something about it's what we do together. Um, and that's a point that just we need to keep in mind. Although I want to transition us a little bit because another thing that I heard you talk about was the the whole idea of work recovery yeah. and that there are these four kinds of experiences that we can do in work recovery. Now, my interpretation of that was that that actually is an individual piece, but I'm, I might've missed that too. So can you talk to us more about that idea of work recovery? Yeah, it is, it is an individual piece, but it can be supported by the school. So, you know, first of all, I like to think of workplace wellbeing, um, being impacted by our work demands on the one hand, and that's those six areas of work life that we just discussed, you know, the, the workload and the community and the control and, you know, the other three. Um, and then on the other hand, you have your work recovery and the work demands, you know, and this is just me kind of from my experience, this doesn't come from research, but I would say your work demands are, let's say 80% and your work recovery is about 20%. So everything that we've just talked about up to this point has been about reducing your work demands, but there are things that we can do as individuals to improve our work recovery. And the research shows that when it starts to go really wrong for individuals is, is when not only are the work demands too much, but the work recovery is insufficient so that people are going into work the next day over and over and over again when they have not sufficiently recovered from the previous day's demands. And there is some very good, very clear cut research around this, which wowed me when I first came across it when I was writing my book. And that is that there are four experiences that we need to be engaging in regularly and frequently in order to have the most effective work recovery during our non-work time. And those are psychological detachment. So that's we need to be switching off, not just from doing work, but from thinking about work. And what the research shows is that that's even more important on days when it's been very stressful. And those are the days when we find it the most difficult to switch off. We ruminate. And what we know from the research is that rumination is very damaging to our health. It causes cardiovascular disease, you know, and other things. But it also, um, well, say causes, contributes to cardiovascular disease. But it also impacts our sleep. And of course, we know, don't we, that when we don't sleep well, we're more stressed. And when we're more stressed, we don't sleep well. So we get into this loop. So that's the first one. Can, can we talk about that just a little bit more? Please, yeah. And I love that you brought up sleep. So I have met people who have said to me, when the day's over, they walk out and they leave it all behind. And I have always kind of marveled at that. <laughs> and, and I was working with a group of nonprofit and governmental leaders two weeks ago. 
and we were doing kind of problem identification. Like, how do you get down to the root problem? And we were, I can't even remember the, the one they were dealing with. <clears throat> I think it was, but it, but the, it came to lack of sleep. Oh, morning routines. So we've yeah. done some training on how do you establish really healthy morning routines? So you get your day going and you take care of yourself in that time. And yeah. everybody that had kind of made a commitment to do something, all but one person had failed to follow through in that commitment. So we said, all right, let's, let's use this as an, as an example for root cause analysis. And let's look at some of the root problems. And so we started doing a breakdown. And of course, one of the big ones was not getting to sleep at night. Okay, why are we not getting to sleep at night? Because we're watching TV. Why are we watching TV? To kind of stop thinking about work because we can't stop thinking and we stay up late and then we still wake up in the middle of the night. <laughs> we get to bed late and then we get to the middle of the night and we're still thinking about work. And so that ability to turn off for a lot of people is a big challenge. Um, so, you know, when you, when you talk about switching off, like, how do we do that? Yeah, I mean, there are ways in which we can do that. And, you know, the truth is that with all of these, um, these four experiences for work recovery, it requires us to be intentional because these things for many people don't happen, you know, as a matter of course. Yes, some people do find it easy to switch off, but the majority of school leaders, in my experience, don't. Um, so some of the ways or some of the things that we need to attend to when it comes to switching off. Um, first of all, the most, you know, the, the, the kind of foundation, if you like, is about separating out our professional and personal identity. So what we know is that school leaders and teachers, their professional and personal identity is much more closely intertwined than it is with other people in other jobs. And so when we finish at the end of the day, if we stop working, we often feel guilty. And so we need to separate out that this is me, the professional, and this is my personal identity and reframe those feelings of guilt. We also need to set clearer homework boundaries. And the research shows that there are two kinds of people, one are called integrators and one are called separators. And integrators are people who prefer work and home to be integrated and separators are people who prefer them to be separate. And regardless of whether it's a preference or not, the research shows that separators have better well-being than integrators. So we need to find ways to set better homework boundaries. And there are ways in which we can do that. I mean, one of the ways is to to have understandings with colleagues you know about what we will and what we won't do after school you know it may well be that we have a policy in our school that means we cannot send emails after a certain time however that doesn't mean that as a bunch of colleagues we're not sending whatsapp messages or texts or whatever it is all evening gossiping about what happened during the day or catastrophizing about something and creating drama and so we need to make it clear to colleagues that there are some nights where we're we're switching off our phone or when please don't be offended if I don't answer the messages. I'm not going to do this anymore. It's for my well-being. Um, can I just um, jump in there? Because I, <clears throat> I know there are some 
Like there are assistant principals that may be responsible for getting substitutes. And so they're plugged in at night. They're plugged in in the morning because there's that responsibility. But, and, and those are realities, but also I think we can be very selective about who we're letting in, in those times. And we can yeah, teach people, you know, yeah, if you've got something, if, if I need to find a sub for you, let me know. But all of the other stuff, that's all off limits. Yeah, you need to have boundaries. And, you know, and I would say if you've got one assistant principal who's always responsible for the cover and he's always the one that's having to do it in the evenings and the next day, actually, that's a workplace situation that needs to be addressed because that isn't right. That isn't good for that individual's well-being. And whether you like it or not, eventually that will impact on them. So that burden needs to be shared, you know, mm. um, and that and that's a way that you come up with as a team with creative ideas for how we can, you know, so that's an example of how we would collaboratively, you know, use the data available to us and our understanding of our own workplace to address something that needs to be addressed for the benefit of an individual, you know. Other things are about making it harder to work in non-work time. So one of the first things I did when I realized that the phone, you know, technology was really impacting on me was something quite simple. I removed the app so that I have to go in through the browser to get to my work email account. And it, I stopped the notification so it wasn't dinging all the time. And just that on its own made a big difference. I then agreed with my senior leadership team that for at least one evening a week and usually two, we would, you know, we shared the burden of things that had to be done in the evenings and one to two evenings a week, I would not only switch off my phone, but I would put it in a drawer by the side of the bed upstairs so that I wasn't, you know, we get that dopamine hit and it's addictive, that thing with the finger that we keep doing this and we can't stop and we keep checking our work email and checking it and checking it and there's no need for it. It becomes addictive and it's, habit forming. One of the other things we can do is establish pre and post work rituals so that we can put a line underneath, you know, that was the working day and this is now home. And that might happen in the car driving home. You know, you might put on for the first 15 minutes, a work related podcast or something, and then you switch over to something that's not work related anymore. Okay. I've or, or you agree to, with yourself for the first 15 minutes, I'm going to allow myself to ruminate and then I'm going to draw a line and I'm going to put some nice music on or a podcast and that it's going to be about something that I enjoy in my personal life. Or it could be when you um, come into the house, you immediately have a shower and get changed into, you know, relaxing clothes. We're not sitting around in our shirt and tie or whatever. Or it could be that we visit the gym on the way home or, you know, the, the very, very unhealthy work ritual, uh, post-work rituals. But this was first kind of investigated with nurses um, back in the old days where they used to go outside and have a cigarette at the end of their shift. And for them, that was an important ritual that all the nurses that were on shift together went outside, shared a cigarette, had a bit of a chat about what they were going to be doing at home the, for the rest of the day. And then they were able to draw a line under work. You know, I love so this idea fun. of rituals because the rituals are sending messages physically to our body, but then also, also mentally. And I think that's so important. Is there a place for 
like how does reflection work in that? Because I think that's what one of the things a lot of people wrestle with is they have a specific situation or just, you know, whatever it is and and they need to play it over in their mind. But I think a lot of us lack real structure on how we do that in a way that we can then bring closure to that reflection. And instead we just loop and loop and loop on the same thing. Yeah. So do you have any advice for yeah. us? I think there are a few things there. I mean, you know, one of the other things that we can do actually is spend time reflecting in our office or in our classroom before we leave at the end of the day, we give ourselves time to do that. And also one of the other techniques for switching off is to actually, and this has been shown to be highly effective in the research, is to reflect upon what things are bothering us about what we need to do tomorrow and the reason why we might want to work all night. And then actually just make a short list before we leave of what we're going to do tomorrow and how we're going to do it. So habit forming isn't just about making a list of what needs to be done, but when we'll do it and where we will be when we do it. And for some reason that seems to have a greater connection with you know, with impact on the brain. So I think that that's one thing. I think the other thing, it's about understanding and educating ourselves and others about what happens when we ruminate and why we ruminate. And once you start understanding what rumination is, I think it's easier to identify it and stop it, you know? So we have, um, the, the research differs on this, but somewhere, let's say somewhere in the region of 10,000 thoughts a day. And about 80% of those thoughts are negative. And about 60% of those thoughts are the same thoughts that we had the day before. So what we're doing basically as humans, you know, this is an evolutionary survival mechanism, rumination, you know, we're looking for threat. Every time we walk into a room, we're looking to see whether we're at risk of being rejected. We're constantly all day, you know, hyper alert to see whether there are any other threats. And so rumination is all about that. It's a it's an evolutionary mechanism to keep us alive, mm -hmm. but we don't need it in the modern day. So it, it, understanding what it is and why it happens, I think, helps us to understand that it's harmful and that we need to stop. So, Helen, are you telling me? that if I have an intense situation and I'm replaying it in my head, thinking about what I should have said or what I will say tomorrow, you telling me that I shouldn't be replaying that 10,000 times? <laughs> what I call the mini movie. So what happens is you have this thought and then over the period of 24, 48, 72 hours, it goes from being this small thing to being this mini movie that you've blown up into a huge thing, you know, and we are hardwired for negativity. That's the survival, you know, mechanism. So just understanding that. And when, when we understand that, then we're able to, um, to label it, to say, okay, this is rumination. The reason I'm doing that is because I'm hardwired to do that, but actually it's harmful for me and I can let it go. Mm -hmm. And of course, I am actually, um, I haven't said that before, it's not in my bio, but I am actually a yoga teacher and I'm also a yoga teacher trainer. And I don't talk about this that often um, in these you know, sessions and in my workshops, because the truth is that meditative practices are actually the most effective way that you can stop ruminating, but they also have the highest dropout rate of any 
of these, you know, kinds of strategies. And so I don't recommend them to people because most people can't keep them up. But one of the things that we learn in mindfulness meditation is that when thoughts crop up, we don't try to push them out of our mind. We just acknowledge them and we label them. Okay, that's me worrying about that conversation that I had with a member of staff earlier today. And I'm anxious about that because, and then we let it go. You know, so I think that those are the best ways. But we also know that when we engage in active pastimes, we are more able to switch off than we are when we engage in passive pastimes and all the research points to that. So when we engage in more physical, active, um, you know, coming on to talk about the other three um, uh, experiences, when we relax through more active things, when we engage in mastery experiences through more active things, the research shows that we are better able to switch off. So actually the worst way to switch off is lying on the sofa watching the television, which is the single most preferred way. You know, if we go out and socialize with people, we're better able to switch off, even though we feel too tired to do so. Mm. We all acknowledge that actually when we get there, we think, oh, I feel so much better. I thought I was too tired to go out, but actually it's perked me up. If we go out and walk in nature, you know, that all the research shows that that's the single most, you know, most effective activity that we can do for our well-being is exercising in nature. It's easier to switch off. Whereas if we just lie on the sofa and we watch TV, we are more likely to keep coming back to these same thoughts over and over again. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I, the way I'm translating that in my head is that the more that we're kind of passive receivers, that's what we're really doing is distracting ourselves. But when yeah. we're actively engaging with people, engaging in exercise, going out into nature, at that point, we're more, we're in control, we're taking that initiative. And that's where the positive kinds of stimulation can come in. Yeah. But Cause you know, what we're doing there is we're, when we just lie on the sofa watching television, we're not changing the hormonal environment in our body. You know, we still have our stress hormones, our cortisol and adrenaline and noradrenaline are still pumping out. Whereas when we do something that's more active, we are engaging our happy hormones, our serotonin, you know, maybe not so much our dopamine it can be a little bit, you know, it's a double-edged sword, the dopamine, um, but our, our endorphins when we exercise and also when we spend time with people that we care about, our oxytocin is replacing all of those you know, unhealthy and unhelpful hormones. Because when we lie on the sofa, that's not happening. We're just lying there. We're still having all of these stress hormones coursing through our body. And so we're not changing anything. Hmm. Okay. So you're going to burst a bubble for me here, I'm afraid. One of the things that I like to do to close out my workday is to go for a long walk. Um, you know, we were talking before turning on that doing the Penine way. And I think probably as this episode airs, I will hopefully just be coming off that trail. So I'm doing a lot of walking, but I'll go out. I'll take, I'll take the dog for a walk and do I don't know, three and a half miles or so. But I use that time to process a lot of what's happening 
in my business, in my work, thinking about just I'm trying to line stuff up in my head, or a lot of times I'll have a problem or pain point that I, I process out. Is that, am I abusing exercise or am I doing this the right way, being able to come off then and, and let stuff go? Yeah, a, a, bit, a bit of both really. And I think it depends. The research shows that if we think about work and fail to detach from work, but it's in a positive way, then that isn't as that isn't harmful to us. So we can think positively. So if we're planning and we're feeling excited about things that are going to happen in the future, then that isn't necessarily harmful. It's the rumination on the confrontations that we've had during the day and the less than positive experiences and interactions and the going over and over and over, you know, the worrying, the anxiety, that's what we need to stop. However, what I would also say is that it's better for you to, again, have a, a, a kind of break off you know, where I'm going to go out and I'm going to walk for an hour. And for the first 30 minutes, I'm going to let myself process all of those things. And after that, I'm going to put my music on or I'm going to put on a podcast in my earphones or I'm going to become very mindful, you know, forest bathing, they call it, don't they, where I'm listening to the birds and the sounds of the trees and or the ocean or whatever it is. And I'm going to focus and be mindful just of where I am now and what's happening around me now and just nurture myself and you know engage in self-care effectively and i think that that's probably a much better way of using that time than just using the whole time to focus upon work does that make sense yeah absolutely and and i find i do these kind of 20, I call it my 24 hour soul cleanse where I'll leave in an afternoon and just walk a few miles, set, set up a campsite and be on my own and then get up in the morning and, and walk out. So I can leave a Friday afternoon and be back Saturday by noon and it's less than 24 hours and yet to have that quiet time. And I do find that, I mean, I do have to be careful about just thinking too much, but I also feel like my, I, my body, my head knows what I need sometimes. So sometimes it's a little bit more, okay, I've got to figure this thing out. And then once I get that, now I can just kind of let it go and relax. And then there's other times where I get out there and I am not, I am not thinking about the work. I'm not thinking about the job. I'm just going to look at all these flowers. You're exactly right. Well, let's come back to where we were earlier when we talked about this strategic framework. You know, you, you, one size does not fit all, first of all. So, you know, recommendations that I might make won't work for everyone. But also this gathering data, you are gathering data. You know what works for you. You know what makes you feel good and what doesn't make you feel good. And if you're not sure, then you can start keeping a journal so that you can identify so you're already tapping into what you need and if you think it's beneficial for you to think about and process and reflect and and plan work for the whole hour of that walk with the dog and you know that makes you feel good then there's no reason why you shouldn't do that however if you're identifying that on some days actually i can't let things go 
and it's actually unhealthy you know we know how we feel in our mind and in our body what we have to do frederick is is listen to that and honor it and i think that everyone who struggles with their well-being knows they're struggling but they just that they just disregard and they keep pressing on but they know you know before i had my burnout i knew I knew what was happening to me, but I just kept pushing it aside and pressing on until I reached a crisis. And that's what happens when people actually burn out. It's like um, a very, very, very slow walk up to the edge of a cliff and then you fall off the edge of the cliff and you're down there and you're looking up thinking, how, you know, how did I get here? <laughs> but the last the last stage is is a fall, a, a drop. You know, it's drastic. It's a crisis. But we all... We all know this. I don't think anyone's going to say, but I didn't realize I was so stressed. Everyone knows they're so stressed, but they just, they don't listen to what they, their body needs and they just keep pressing on for, for, for various reasons, don't they? Yes. Yes. Many of us. <laughs> yeah, I so think everyone. <laughs> I, I think the, the other, um, work recovery experiences, relaxation, control, and then mastery experiences. See, I really did listen to that podcast that you were on. Um, can we jump to mastery experiences? Because that is not one I think that people typically think about, but that really resonated with me. Yeah. I mean, you've picked the right two there because psychological detachment is the most important and mastery experiences is, is the one that people are the least familiar with and it surprises them the most, you know. So the research shows that if we engage in experiences where we are feeling a sense of accomplishment and achievement, um, but outside of our work domain, then this has a huge benefit to our work recovery. So if we can be spending weekends and evenings and holidays at least, um, doing something that becomes progressively more challenging. So that might be something like a physical activity that becomes progressively more challenging, you know, like beating your time with a 10K or a marathon or triathlon or, you know, um, you know, I'm a yogi. So yoga never stops. It's all there's always harder stuff to do, you know. Or it could be hobbies where you're learning new things all the time. You're learning new skills. Um, it could be learning a language. It could be learning to play a musical instrument, which might be something that you've been doing for years. But now you're suddenly starting to stretch yourself to play harder things. If you're just playing a musical instrument and you're playing the same thing that you've played for years, that's a relaxation experience, isn't it? And it might be an experience that helps you to psychologically detach, but it's not going to be a mastery experience unless there's a sense of accomplishment. Helen, and it I, might, yeah. Yeah, no, that I just had a light bulb go off in my head because I've been in a, a beginning guitarist for a long, long time. But right. there are times where I do just want to play that same song and I feel myself sometimes I should be digging in and doing these exercises, but I don't have the energy for that. Right, right yeah. now, I just want to play. And that's the relaxation. But there are times when I really dig in and try to get better at something. And that is productive. It's just, it is a different form of recovery. So you just triggered a it light is. bulb for me where you can we use the same activity in different ways. And again, you're listening to your body, aren't you? You're listening to the data. You know, 
the what 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 your body's telling you about what you need you know so that the, the other thing that i could suggest is that mastery experiences can be in the form of study but study that is not work related you know ideally could be work adjacent but not you know not completely work related and that sense of accomplishment that we get from those mastery experiences can have a huge impact on our so again we're moving away from lying on the sofa watching the tv you know it's doing something more constructive and productive and of course what happens with those mastery experiences not only do we um that sense of accomplishment activates our happy hormones um, but it also it helps us to switch off mm. when we're doing that. We have to concentrate really hard, don't we? And so we're not we're not necessarily we're not able to kind of think about work. Yeah. So when I'm geeking out on all my backpacking gear and watching ten thousand comparisons of tent weights and bestow, <laughs> I can yeah. I can tell Pam, hey, I'm just doing work recovery. Well, you are really, aren't you? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, when I was at my worst coming up to my burnout, I would spend Saturday morning not online shopping, but actually online window shopping, just looking at pictures of beautiful dresses for a couple of hours just to completely decompress, you know. Now, if I'd let that happen for the whole day, that would not have been a very healthy way to recover, would it? But to do that for an hour while you're just moving into a, the new, a new, new mode is not necessarily a bad thing to do for me that was relaxing and that was also enabling me to physic to, to psychologically detach you know Helen, i'm i'm loving this conversation because you're helping me understand myself better and so thank you and i hope there are other people listening and hearing things and having those light bulbs go off of like oh yeah this this is me or this is why i do this positive or negative i i want to touch on two other things before we start to wrap this up um, you talked about this idea of micro breaks. So can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. So what we know with all these recovery experiences is that we need to be experiencing them regularly and frequently. And the reason for that is that the research shows that, for example, vacation time, the benefit of the vacation only lasts about two weeks, a maximum of a month, but on average about two weeks. We also know that the benefit of the weekend only lasts on average until Tuesday. Therefore, this idea as educators that we're going to push on to the next vacation isn't going to work. And the idea that we're going to push on through to the next to the weekend isn't going to work. So we need to be having these recovery experiences every weekend and two or three evenings a week minimum, but also we need to be having these recovery experiences. And this is where people that work in schools find this challenging during the working day. Imagine, you know, I always tell this story, you know, that my worst day that I can remember was 12 meetings back to back, starting at 6.45 in the morning and finishing at 6 p.m. where I didn't have time to go to the bathroom or drink water or eat or process or anything. And... Yes. So, okay. So in schools, we don't necessarily have the luxury of being able to take breaks, but sometimes when we do have those opportunities, we don't take them. But what the research shows is that actually micro breaks of as little as 40 seconds, if we have several of them during the working day, so breaks where we're engaging in one of these 
one of four these four experiences you know we might just be staring out of a window looking at a bird in a tree that's re relaxation that might also be a, a helping us to switch off we might be having a brief conversation for two or three minutes with a colleague that's not about work hey what did you do last night or did you see the match or you know whatever um we also know that it needs to be something that's under your control so you're spending that time how you want to and doing it when you want to so we can't schedule it for people they need to take it when it works for them but the research is very clear that there is a significant impact on people's well-being if they can build into their schedule these micro breaks of 40 seconds you know up to five minutes and if you have several of those over the day it's going to have a huge benefit to you and i think it's something in schools that we're actually very bad at yes. and you know one of the things that i'm pushing because i would have loved this in my last school wouldn't it be wonderful if every school had a room staff could go to a little bit like we have a timeout space for students who are struggling which was a room where there was silence where you could go for 30 seconds or five minutes or 10 minutes and sit with your eyes closed you might listen to music in your earpods you might read two pages of a book you might stare out of the window but there was silence and you knew you had that sanctuary that you could go to when you needed it to take that micro break how lovely would that be doesn't it isn't necessary we can take micro breaks in many ways but wouldn't that be a great thing and and send a great signal and a message right about what we value and i think that's you go way back to looking at working conditions there are all those signals of what we value here and so many times it is all about work focus sacrifice push through grind embrace the grind so yeah, that works and this brings us back to where we started with work recovery because you asked me well work recovery is individual isn't it well actually yes it is but there are many ways in which employers or you know school leaders can support the work recovery process by having clear parameters around how we contact people outside of school hours for example by providing opportunities for people to take micro breaks by creating a culture where self-care is not something it's not it's they're not dirty words that there's something that is considered to be um a skill and an attribute that is desirable now i don't want to go too far with this because if you go too far with this what you're suggesting is that well-being in the workplace is all about self-care and it isn't. It's mostly, remember, 80% of it is about workplace conditions. But if we can make it easier for people not to feel guilty or embarrassed or ashamed and to make it easier for them to engage in those work recovery experiences, then it becomes, again, something that we do together and not just something that is individual. Okay, you've just segued into the final content question that I have for you. And, and that's related to mastery experiences that are work-related mastery experiences. If, if I work in a school where I am supported and I have the lead of, um, and getting the support of continually growing in my craft and getting better as a teacher, not because I'm being pushed, 
but because I know how I want to get better and I have access to the resources, human and, and whatever else to get better at my craft. What role would that improvement of craft play in burnout? Okay. Look, well, like with most things, I've got quite a lot of kind of things to say about that. I mean, first of all, we know that assistant principals around the world are notoriously undertrained. And that's something that needs to be addressed because when you are working outside of your capacity, that is very stressful and that can lead to burnout. What, what we also know and what I'm very keen on is understanding, particularly as an assistant principal, often you are involved in that people work. And even principal training doesn't emphasize the importance of people work enough. So becoming more skilled and understanding how you do people work well, how you deal with the emotions of others in the workplace, because schools are emotional arenas. And a lot of the rumination that we take part in outside of work is around those emotional interactions that we've had with people during the day. You know, when, okay, we might ruminate over money. We might ruminate over not having enough money for to buy things, finances. But most of the rumination we do is around human interaction, isn't it? So if we can train people better or if we can take the initiative to, to um, take on board that learning ourselves to understand better. So we're working at our capacity and we are developing our skills around people work. I think it can be extremely helpful. However, I do want to say the phrase self-sabotage. So what we know is that individuals can make themselves more vulnerable to burnout through self-sabotage behaviors. And there are some self-sabotage behaviors that may encourage people to go off and get more qualifications than they need and study more than they need. And for example, if they have imposter syndrome and they feel that they need to prove themselves, if they're perfectionists or if they're validation seeking. Now, I am not an imposter. I'm very confident, but I am a validation seeker. And it is more common in women and it is more common in other minorities um, who go off and do far more study and qualifications than they need to. Um, because they think they need to prove themselves to themselves and they want to get validation from others, you know? And so we need to be mindful and reflect upon our own self-sabotage behaviours. Now, in my book, there's a whole chapter and I identify 10 self-sabotage behaviours that I see commonly in school leaders. And we just need to be mindful that we're not pushing ourselves too hard to learn too much around our craft for the wrong reasons or for reasons that may, even though that learning may be helpful to us, the time it takes out of our non-work time and the extent to which we're pushing ourselves and putting ourselves under strain may be detrimental. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's good to get better. It's good to grow, but be mindful of why and for who you're growing and what is the investment that you're making in that. Absolutely. You know, when I had my burnout, I sought counseling 
And that helped me to see very clearly, although the working conditions were primarily the reason, and not just in one school, it had built up over a decade possibly, but there were also self-sabotage behaviours, there's no doubt. And I have a workshop on self-sabotage behaviours that I've delivered to hundreds and hundreds of school leaders around the world. And everyone is able to identify at least three of them. And some people are able to identify as many as seven in themselves. And there are quite a few of these self-sabotage behaviours that would lead to us pushing ourselves too hard in study and learning to develop in our role. So it needs to be in balance, mm. like everything else. <laughs> Helen, it sounds like we have another podcast to do, <laughs> self-sabotaging behaviours. That would be great. And yeah, it's, um, I send, when I do coaching, I send that chapter of my book to individuals as well. And um, it promotes very interesting reflection and study and also really enables people to move on and make and bring about changes in their life um, for the benefit of their well-being because they suddenly, you know, most of these self-sabotage behaviours are rooted in childhood. Mm. Uh, you know, it's it's very interesting. Yeah, well, you started to mention it, and and one part of me went, "Oh, that'd be a great topic for a show," and the other part of me went, "Oh gosh, how many of those are going to apply to me?" <laughs> but oh, this could be painful too. <laughs> Embarrassed about, you know, I have to say, I'm not a psychologist, and I'm not a trained counselor. I am a trained coach, but I find this is a very, very useful coaching tool. And most people are able to, you know, that sessions sometimes they say to me, oh, this has gone a bit pseudo counselling. I hope you don't mind because they start digging back into things that happened to them in childhood that have led them to start behaving in this way in adulthood. And they realise how these things are actually jeopardising their well-being, their own behaviours. But I want to come back again to this is only 20%. 80% is workplace conditions, and we must never forget that. It's not your fault. And and well-being is well-being is something we do together. It is. I, it is. It's what we do together. Wonderful. Just a couple more questions as we wrap this up. So, first, what part of your own leadership are you still trying to get better at? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think <laughs> listening more than I talk <laughs> and coaching is helpful with that. You know, becoming a coach has really helped me to listen. Um, being a consultant is absolutely about listening to the school's needs and, you know, not foisting your own ideas and opinions on people too much so I think yeah listening is it's an ongoing process for me becoming a better listener mm. and and I think for us all if listeners could take just one thing away from today's podcast what would it be I think it's about understanding it's about that balance between work demands and work recovery and in order to get the most out of workplace well-being, we need to address both. But if we think of it as a kind of scale and 80% of it, more stones on the side of the work demands and less stones on the side of the work recovery. So the things that we can do as individuals to improve our work recovery, but, but the majority of the work needs to be done at an organisational level within schools collaboratively. Wow. 
Thank you so much. I can imagine people are going to want to get their hands on your book. I have a copy and it's wonderful. And just there's, it's not a fluffy book. Like there is a lot of really serious, um, strong content. So a great read for people. And how, how can people find you? How can they learn more about your work? Yeah, so I have a website, drhelenkelly.com. You can find me there. There's um, a lot of blog um, articles that I've written. There's also articles that I've had published in magazines. There are other podcasts that they can listen to there. Um, I'm also, I hang out mostly on LinkedIn. I'm occasionally on Twitter and, and, and occasionally on Facebook, but LinkedIn is where you'll find me. I have about 15,000 followers on LinkedIn and I'm there every day. So you'll always find me there. Um, you can find my email address. There's also a contact page on my website and I'm always happy to hear from people. Um, so get in touch. Oh. Helen, thank you so much. This has been just, just great. I've really enjoyed it, Frederick. Thank you for inviting me. Okay. And I hope we can have you back on soon. I'd love to. Okay, great. I enjoyed this conversation so much. A big part of the joy for me was watching the conversation go in a direction different from where I had planned. You may have noticed at the front end, I was trying to get Helen to give us some handy practices and she definitely avoided my efforts. And that was beautiful because here's where we got to go. Well-being is something we do together. So here's where I encourage you to go. Here's what I encourage you to do. First, go to Helen's website, drhelenkelly.com. That's D-R-H-E-L-E-N, just one L in Helen, and then Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, drhelenkelly.com. Go to the publications link, and she has a lot of content. Just scan the, scan the titles and... Find one, find one piece of blog, article, podcast, whichever, engage with it. And if it resonates with you, share it with leaders in your school, administrative leaders, of course, but also your teachers and your staff leaders. And then see if anyone is interested in talking more about well-being and then go from there. As you proceed, remember that this work is community work. Trust your teachers, trust your staff. Trust them to lead, and then you can serve by creating the space for them to do this important work. And if you, dear colleague, are feeling burned out, remember, it may be 20% you, but it is 80% the workplace. So be kind to yourself. And if you can do one thing to be kinder to yourself, Remember I said we'd get back to exercise in here? It is to move your body. And as you move, to let go of that work. If you enjoyed this podcast and found something that resonated with you, please email me at frederick at frederickbuskey.com and or rate the podcast and leave a review. You can find out more about my work and services at frederickbuskey.com. I look forward to seeing you again on Friday when we recap this week's daily emails. I'm Frederick Buskey, and thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Assistant Principal Podcast. 
Cheers. <laughs>